Welcome to Reconciliation Roundtable, a new podcast where we discuss building bridges of understanding across religious and political difference. I'm your host, Mark Beckwith, retired Bishop of the Diocese of Newark in the Episcopal Church. There are forces and voices in our increasingly polarized world that want us to view each other in the issues of the day in a binary way, this or that, good or bad. I want to invite you on a journey beyond the safety of our silos and our egos to the soul, where we have the opportunity to see things differently. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find more content like this, please visit my website at www.markbeckwith.net, where you can listen to more episodes, read my weekly blog, and sign up to get weekly reflections in your inbox. I also explore the themes of this podcast further in my book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. My guest today is Dan Darling, the Reverend Dan Darling, who I've gotten to know through our mutual work in Braver Angels. Dan is the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and assistant professor of faith and culture at Texas Baptist College. He also writes regularly for USA Today, has been on Morning Joe and other media sharing his story. I heard him on NPR a few weeks ago as he explained the decision of the Southern Baptist Convention on the role of women in the church. Dan, it's so great to have you here and to continue the conversations that we have started before our time together at the Brave Rangers Convention in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and since. So appreciate that. Well, thanks. And I appreciate you having me on. I've appreciated our conversations as well, both at the convention and meals and Really, it's funny. I think we were on a panel at Brave Rangels a few years ago in St. Louis. It was really encouraging to see that many folks coming together to say, hey, what can we do to strengthen our democracy? Make sure that this this project that's almost 250 years old, you know, keeps going. Yeah. You're the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement and a professor of faith and culture at Texas Baptist College. Tell me, tell us what that involves. Yeah, so this is a center that's named after Richard Land, who was a key Southern Baptist leader in the late 20th century, early 21st century. Dr. Land is still very much active. and Him and I have gotten to become really good friends. But, you know, the idea is to help Christians think through, you know, how do we apply our faith to the culture? How do we steward this citizenship that we have? I think personally that God has put us in this place in this time for a purpose and for a reason. So how do we steward this moment in this time? What does it look like? You know, Baptists have a unique uh, approach to the intersection of the church and the state. And so I think we're, we're trying to recover some of that. And I, I teach in the college. We have a faith and culture concentration that I teach at. And then, of course, as you mentioned, I do a lot of speaking and writing, contribute to places like USA Today and, and other places. So I enjoy it. We moved to Texas about a year ago. My wife's from here, from Fort Worth, so she's glad to be back here. I don't know if you've met too many Texans, but there's nobody that loves their state more than Texans, and they don't understand why anyone would want to live anywhere else. And so me being from um, the Chicago area, I've sort of married into that. <laughs> <laughs> My experience is that people from Minnesota rival Texans for their love of their state even though it's colder than anything any of us can imagine. Uh, that's yeah. been my experience. 
Dan, you're the author of a recently published book, Agents of Grace, How to Bridge Divides and Love as Jesus Loved. How do you see the divide? As you know, I think the last several years in American life have been very polarizing. On the one hand, I feel like we're more polarized than we have been. There used to be sort of a shared consensus around democracy, love of America, even a generic sort of civil religion where we all sort of appeal to God, even though people practice that in different ways. Today, because of the digital age, because I think of globalization, because of you know the pandemic and a number of things, the rise of populism, we're much more polarized. On the other hand, you know, I read a fair amount of American history, and I'm not as worried as others are, because I feel like we've been through moments like these before. But I do think there, there are deep divisions. I mean, on the one hand, there are the simple divisions of left and right. I think those are still very pronounced. And I think the parties have gotten more distinct, I would say, than maybe in previous times in American history, where in each party you had a conservative and liberal faction. On the other hand, I think there are other divides, and we've talked about this too, that, that sort of transcend left and right. Mm. I think the digital age has exposed a sort of class divide between sort of the professional class, leadership class that we might find ourselves as a part of, and the working class. There's a lot of deep distrust of institutions. And many of our institutions have failed us in the last several years. The church and business, government, academia, law enforcement, you just go through all of our institutions. They've all failed us in some way. So there's a widespread lack of trust. I think everyone who is in a position of leadership or influence, you start with the deficit of, of trust even mm -hmm. before you start. And so I think all those kind of swirl around to make it a very polarized environment that I think is worrisome for, for the health of our democracy. And that brought us together through Braver Angels, which is this yeah. national movement to uh, depolarize America, not to pull one side to the other, but to find common ground. And we each had different colored lanyards at the Braver Angels convention. Mine was blue, yours was red. And that spoke of a difference. And to focus on the, the title of your book, Love as Jesus Loved. Say more about that. How do you see us loving as Jesus loved in a world where people are having a hard time loving one another? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to think about. I think this idea of love, like what does love require? I'm particularly talking to Christians, people who profess faith in Christ as uh, you know, the Son of God. And I think sometimes we tend to think of love as a sort of optional thing we, we will get to after we've done everything else. But I'm struck by the way that Jesus, you know, in the in the upper room, the night he was betrayed, he tells his disciples, this is a command I give to you to love one another, that it's not optional. It's a command. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, you know, he says, love one another as I have loved you. The greatest expression of love is the love that Jesus gave. Jesus said that greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down their life for his friend. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love of self-giving. And he obviously is the greatest example of that, having given himself to go to the cross to die for our sins. And he's telling a, a group of men that he brought together that were pretty diverse, right? If you think yeah. of the, the disciples, on the one end, you have Matthew, who was a tax collector who would have been viewed by most of his fellow countrymen as a, as a sellout to the Roman government. They viewed the Roman government with either skepticism or outright hostility because they were, they were occupied. They had to wake up every day and see that Roman flag flying high above their, their land. So Matthew would, would absolutely be considered a sellout. On the other hand, you had Simon the Zealot, who was 
probably a couple of clicks away from being an insurrectionist. You know, wanting to overthrow Rome was probably part of some really radical anti-government groups. And Jesus puts them together, you know, all these men across the spectrum of political beliefs and backgrounds. And he says, now you have a new family and you have a new identity as a follower of Jesus and you are commanded to love one another. So I really want to talk about what does love require? What does love mean? I think we have distorted notions of love, but I think it's, I think it's really important we recapture that idea. How did you start in your journey of faith? You're from Chicago, grew up in a religious family, and what was the arc of your journey that led you deeper into this relationship uh, with Jesus to the extent that you have uh, yeah. offered your professional life for that? Well, it's interesting. I think when you think about your story, sometimes you have to go even before you were born, you know, you have to look at your family history and roots. And it's really, in some ways, I just see the hand of God on my life even before I was born. So my grandparents, particularly on my mom's side, my mom who passed away a few months ago, she was Jewish and her parents were first generation Americans, their parents. So that would be my great grandparents. They emigrated from one side from Russia and one side from Poland to really escape the pogroms in the early 20th century. And they came to America poor. My grandfather fought in World War II. He was a tank commander, grew up through the Great Depression, part of that greatest generation. My father kind of grew up in a very dysfunctional home, not real churched. His father was an alcoholic, left the family. His stepfather was his struggle with addiction. My dad had to work at like the age of 14 to support his mom. He became a Christian through the ministry of Billy Graham. You know, the Billy Graham crusade came through mm -hmm. Chicago in 1971. And he had heard about it from his sister. He went to the Billy Graham crusade. He walked forward and gave his life to Christ and really changed the trajectory of our whole family. He didn't have a real good role model in terms of what a father is supposed to be. So he, he joined the first church he knew. It was a independent Baptist church. We grew up very sort of strict fundamentalists, like independent Baptist. I'm grateful for a lot of it. I mean, I learned the gospel. I learned the hymns and really came to know the Lord at a young age. My mom led me to Christ. And really since that point, I've always had a love for two things. I've had a love for, well, really three things. I've had a love for the church, love for ministry, felt called to the ministry at an early age. And I still do. I still love worship on Sundays. I love church. Always had a love for the culture and, and politics. I was reading like, political memoirs and biographies and political journals in high school, you know, which is not what most high school kids are doing. <laughs> and then I always had a love for words, for writing. Mm -hmm. And I started writing in junior high. And my wife, we've been married 20 years. We have four kids. My eldest is 18. My youngest is 11. We have three girls and a boy. So I just feel that this is, you know, when I look back at the hand of God, that God has really led me along this really interesting pathway. Yeah. What were some of the key insights in this journey that began before you were born to the point where you are now? What key insights or epiphanies, revelations, change in direction? That's a great question. I think there's a few moments. I mean, when I was at junior high, I walked forward at, at a camp and felt the Lord's call to uh, Christian ministry. And then I, I've had some key influences along the way. I think in terms of my theology, I would say early on, you know, listening to some Christian preaching on the radio and then reading. I, I was always an avid reader. So people like C.S. Lewis were always really formative for me. Mere Christianity, the Chronicles of Narnia, a lot of C.S. Lewis's work. Tim Keller has been a formative influence. You know, the late Tim Keller mm -hmm. read a lot of his books. He was a conservative Christian, but really had this view that the gospel is personal transformation 
and personal reconciliation to God through Christ, but it also is about living out the gospel in our communities. And how do we represent the kingdom of God in the communities around us? How do we apply the gospel to art and culture and politics? I think Abraham Kuyper, the sort of Kuyperian view that that all the world is God's is really important to me. The this idea that the gospel is not just what we do on Sundays, but it's what we do uh, throughout the week. And of course, reading folks like Martin Luther King Jr., the way he applied this language of human dignity in the Imago Day to civil rights and how he sort of, you know, harnessed the moral language of of scripture to really prick American consciences. And and he sort of combined both Christian scripture, but also appealed to the founding American documents to say, hey, we on the one hand, we're not living up to what we say we are as a Christian nation, as, as, as people who are Christians. On the other hand, we're not living up to our ideals as Americans. So I think those are some of the formative influences. There have been others as well. Sure. Barriers, challenges along the way that made it difficult or called upon deeper resources to help you get through? Yeah, I think so. When I look back, I realize how good I've had it. You know, I think whether you want to call that privilege or blessing or whatever, the Lord, you know, being having a, a mother, you know, good family life, good family structure, growing up in a, you know, middle-class home. My dad is a plumber. You know, we weren't rich, but we weren't poor and just giving me some of these tools. And and also, you know, growing up in a home that when I look back was really open to like discussion and thinking. And my parents would encourage reading and thinking. And we actually didn't have a TV in our home growing up. And they had a very kind of strict position on that. So we listened, I listened to radio, I read, all that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of barriers, as you know, whether you're in ministry or whatever your calling is, you're going to have people betray you. You're going to have people turn their back on you. You're going to have all sorts of things. And I talk in this book actually about forgiveness and how to move forward, not carry bitterness and resentment. So those have been things, you know, losing my mom this year was was kind of a tough blow. You know, she was pretty young. When you lose someone you love, you don't get over it. You sort of move through it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So there's been some things like that. But oh. yeah. And I, and I really think in terms of barriers, you know, trying to understand like, how do I how do I live as a Christian in, 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 a, in a world that's changing, you know, in, mm-hmm. in a digital world and in an increasingly polarized world? I think in the last few years, I speak a little bit of this about the book, and you and I have talked about this. There's so many forces that are trying to divide us, you know, in terms of our friendships. And I feel like I had to hang on to some of my friendships and, and just make a determination that I'm not going to let these go, even though there's different political lines drawn and, and political divisions and all these things. You know, I've seen a lot of folks. And you've probably had this experience too, folks who agree on a lot of things. They used to be friends, used to talk to each other, now don't talk to each other because some political disagreements or mm. sort of COVID and, and racial tension and all these things have kind of driven a lot of people apart. So I think that's been a challenge, you know, to sure. how do you hang on to these friendships even there's so much trying to pull them apart? Yeah. How do you hang on? What what are what are some of the messages, faith feelings that you have that enable you to hold on? Well, I think it, it does come back to love and friendship. I think we need to recover this idea of friendship. There's a verse in Proverbs. I I grew up learning the King James Version, which I I don't use as much anymore, but there's kind of an elegance and richness to that King James Version. And there's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 24, that says, there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Mm -hmm. And I love that word sticketh. You know, that sticketh makes me really think of like super gluing your fingers together or, you know, when someone spills a Coke on the floor and your shoes stick, you know, like, things that won't let go. And I think of those kinds of relationships where you say, even though I have a deep disagreement with this person, I'm not going to let go of them. I think of Ruth, the story of Ruth and Naomi. Mm -hmm. You know, Naomi is bereft. She's lost her 
husband and her two sons. She's in Moab, foreign country. She wants to go back to her ancestral homeland. And she tells her two daughters, hey, look, stay here. I'm going back. And Ruth says, look, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. In other words, you don't have a choice. I'm not letting you go. Or I think of Jonathan and David, where Jonathan should have been the next king, but God saw, you know, David and and chose David to be the next king of Israel. And Jonathan, even though his father's trying to kill David, Father Saul's trying to kill him, at great risk to his life, he gives up his chance at power. He gives up all of that because he says, I see God's hand on David. I'm his friend. I'm, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to stick with you. Mm. Those kinds of friendships, I think we really, I think we've lost the art of friendship. I think mm. a lot of our conversations are mediated through through devices. And to be able to say, look, I have this friend to the right of me who I think's you know, a little crazy on a couple of things over here. Or I have this friend to the left of me that I think is a little crazy or, or wrong on these things, whatever. But I'm not going to let these friendships go. And, you know, sometimes we're the crazy young that someone has to explain, right? Yeah. But I think that's what love requires. I think this distorted idea of love in our, in our culture today is that love means that I affirm and agree everything you do. I actually think love is different than that. It's saying, I love you and stick with you, even though I don't agree with you on, mm-hmm. on all of these things. And Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, this beautiful love chapter that we, we read at weddings. What people miss about that chapter is it's, it's written in the context of this letter that may be his harshest letter. And he's rebuking the church for for all sorts of things. He's talking about very hard and difficult things. And in the midst of that, he says, okay, let's put this aside and talk about love. And what does love require? It requires patience with others. It requires the benefit of the doubt. When the Bible says love believes all things, doesn't mean we're naive. doesn't mean we don't have discernment, but we give others the benefit of the doubt. In other words, we don't assume that they're coming to this place from a position of malice. You know, I think there's a social media culture out there that has no benefit of the doubt, that Every day, I think there's a sort of looking for a new scapegoat, a new person to sort of blame for everything, sort of the ritual sacrifice every every week or every day on <laughs> online. And I think we have to resist that as Christians and, and yeah. really practice love. Yeah. In this workshop that we did, in some ways, highlighting our differences and mm-hmm. the question and answer portion, somebody asked about evangelism. And I remember saying evangelism is is bringing good news. Evangel means to bring good news. And I'm thinking of an evangelist from India, D.T. Niles, who said, an evangelist is one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. Somebody said, well, how do we be evangelists? Yes. And I said, one of my roles or how I see evangelism is helping a Muslim be a better Muslim and a Jew being a better Jew. And if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I don't have the memory just right, that you said you didn't agree and we didn't have a chance to pursue that. Evangelism, are are we called to evangelize Muslims to become Christians or Jews to become Christians? How how do you see that? You know, as a Baptist, I think we hold two things in tension. Baptists are known for evangelism, but we also believe in a pluralistic society where people can practice their faith, even faiths we disagree with, right? Early Baptists were even defending the rights of Jews and Muslims and even atheists, even there wasn't many of those at the time in the country defending their right to practice their faith without government coercion. And yet we also see evangelism, I see evangelism as an invitation, you know, not coercion, but an invitation. And I, I think for evangelical Christians, you know, we we truly believe that if Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, that 
as Peter says to Andrew, we have found the one who will lead us to God. And I've had conversations with Muslims and Jewish people, and I think we we both agree that we disagree on this, that I, I you know, evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is the way, to, the only way to God. And it would be disrespectful for me to assume that we all believe the same thing, which we really don't. And so for us, it's, it's, it's a personal invitation for us to say, we have experienced peace with God through the atoning work of Christ, through his death and resurrection. We believe that he is renewing us and he is renewing and restoring the world. He's one day going to return to make all things new. We believe we are compelled to tell this story because it has so changed our lives. And I think in, in a sense, all of us are evangelists of the things we believe in, whether we realize it or not. We all are subconsciously, right? If you have a great experience at a, at a restaurant, I don't know about you, but for me, I just can't help telling my friends and saying, yeah. you got to check this place out. I'll, I'll give you an example. And this is just the way that I am. I just read uh, John Meacham's wonderful biography of, of Lincoln. Yeah, we talked about this. So I just absolutely love this biography and I finished it and, and I couldn't help but just tell everyone I knew, you've got to read this. This is so good. Um, I just finished watching the series on Netflix called The Quarterback, where they profile three NFL quarterbacks go behind the mm-hmm. scenes of their lives. I just finished it. It was so good. I love the NFL football. I love sports. And I told all my friends, you've got to see this. Have you seen this yet? Have you, you know? And so I think we're all evangelists for things that we strongly believe in. And that's the way evangelicals see the evangel, that we have found good news and we, we can't help but share it. We don't believe we should coerce people. Mm-hmm. We don't believe we should force people. We believe, particularly Baptists, believe in soul freedom, that every person has, has a conscience and has to make a decision for themselves on their, on their spiritual journey. But for us, we see it as an invitation, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I remember years ago, and I was uh, in Nepal at a Tibetan monastery, and I picked up a book in the bookstore, an interview by a Christian writer of the Lama of this particular monastery. And the interviewer asked the Lama, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What do you think of that? And the Lama says, he's absolutely right. And when he said that, the Lama is not saying, I'm becoming a Christian. But he's saying that Jesus is inviting people to a deeper level of understanding, of a deeper experience of what it means to be alive, to be a relationship with God and and to be human. And that so much of theology in all the major religions invite people at a surface level to sort of hold it on as, as a talisman, if you will, something that they can pull out and put back in your pocket. No, no, no. The journey, the spiritual journey invites us to a deeper, deeper level. That really struck me because I think it's often thought by some of us in part of the Christian movement who think that if somebody's not a Christian, they're doomed to perdition, that the only way to come to God in eternity is to is through Christ. And that does sound coercive to me or to many people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously we would disagree on that respectfully. I think, you know, it's interesting because I've had conversations with Muslim folks who believe similarly about their faith that this is the true way to God. And I think Christians believe that. And I think one of the things we do about the Christian story is we say, this is, this is something I try to say every Easter. And I wrote about this in my, my Easter book. But, you know, if you look at the Christian story, even if you don't believe it, you wish it was true. Because mm-hmm. the Christian story essentially says that the, the world was once good 
something happened, you know, and I think we all agree that the world is not as it should be. I mean, this is why people get involved in politics, right? Because they, they look and say the world's not as it should be. And, and the scripture says that's because humans made a decision to turn away from God and to embrace the devil, embrace the enemy. And because of that, this thing called sin has sort of marbled its way into the human experience. It's why humans turn in on one another. And it is in some ways cursed the the planet, the universe is why we have natural disasters. We have all these things. But it also says that God has come in Jesus to rescue humans from this and to rescue the world. That Jesus, who is both God and man, defeated sin and death in the grave in his death and resurrection. And he's He's renewing human hearts. He's turning humans away from their selfishness, away from their tendency to turn in on one another and toward love and toward love for God and love for other fellow humans. And that he's renewing and restoring the world, that this world is broken and tragic as, as it is, is not all, as it should be. And, and I think it's funny because even our great stories that we tell echo a little bit of this, even subconsciously, right? Like think of the Marvel mo movies that are so popular where they're basically telling that same story that the world was once good, something happened and destroyed it. And we need someone who is kind of like us, but a little bit supernatural to come and rescue us and make the world right again. And so I think the Christian story is, is so beautiful that God has visited us in Jesus, that we don't have to wonder in terms of knowing God, that he has come, that the, the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh, became human, and became one of us. And so we believe in it so much, we just feel like even if you don't believe it, you wish it was true. We need something like that. And so I think we would respectfully say, you know, if we we feel like we've found the truth, we want others to experience that as well. But, you know, everyone has to be accountable to God. Everyone has to make their choice. It can't be something that we coerce or or force. And we believe so strongly in that, that we believe that it's it's the spirit of God who draws people. It's not any, anything with our clever arguments or anything like that. So. Yeah, and, a little and, bit of and the, the so. manifestation of that belief takes different forms. Again, I, I heard you on NPR. I thought very clearly, carefully, and graciously in some ways, explaining the vote of the Southern Baptist Convention not to allow women to be preachers or pastors. And I didn't agree with that, but I really honored how you said that. And then in, in the workshop and in, in our conversations, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in Christ. I've ordained women. I've ordained gay people. And I perform weddings for gay people. So here we are both followers of Jesus, following a truth, certainly a truth that is deeply felt in me and that it motivates my life. And you have, I'm assuming, a, a different take on this. How do we reconcile this? Well, I think that's the beauty of our pluralistic democracy. And, and I think as Christians, you know, I think we would say there's a lot of areas, obviously, that we probably couldn't partner together on, right? We're going to worship at different churches. We're going to have different circles in terms of theology and, and evangelism and all those things that are probably not going to intersect. But there's a lot of areas where we can work together with someone like you and I and think about our neighbors. You know, our, our neighborhoods are increasingly diverse. And there's a lot of areas. I mean, at the most basic level, we all share a concern for our, our city, our community, and our country to really flourish. As a Christian, as an evangelical Christian who believes everything that we just talked about, we care about our city's flourishing. I mean, Jeremiah, I take something from Jeremiah 29, mm -hmm. where he says to the exiles in Babylon, 
seek the welfare of your city. You know, here you are in a place where you don't understand people and it's diverse and it's not like what you're normal used to. Seek the flourishing of your city. That if the city does well, you'll do well. And that's that's as an evangelical that I believe that. So we want our cities to flourish. So in our communities, for instance, we want flourishing schools. We want children to be able to learn how to read and be able to get good jobs and to to be in healthy families. We care about public health. We care about food insecurity. We care about the strength of our democracy. People will be able to vote and have access to voting and, and all those kinds of things. We care about crime and gun violence. And there's so many things that we can work together on in our communities, even if we draw the lines in terms of where we, how we worship, right? So one of the things I loved about Better Angels is, is the fact that we all wore blue and red and some wore yellow because we're more independent. Better Angels wasn't asking us to come to the table as people different than who we really are, but to come to the table as who we are with others to say, what can we do to better our communities? What can we do to strengthen our democracy? It's like, we all care about this country and we want this country to flourish. We may have a few different ideas in terms of policies that would differ on, but at the end of the day, as neighbors, we're called to care for each other and, and love each other. And we're, we're all in the same boat. We don't want this boat that we call America to take on water we don't want it to sink. We don't want it to capsize. We want it to continue to flourish. We all have a vested interest in that. There are different circles of partnership that people are comfortable with, but there's a lot of areas where uh, just caring about the flourishing of our communities where we can do a lot together. Well, and, and to take it even deeper, um, and I feel this in our developing relationship with each other, to honor your faith as a Christian, which is different than my faith as a Christian. And we both know people in our respective communities who don't honor the quote-unquote other side. The blues don't honor the reds. The reds don't honor the blues. These are people who are of faith. They don't honor the other tradition. And I've had people say to me, and I assume people have said to you, oh, how can you do that? Aren't you betraying your values? And I think, no, I'm deepening my values by learning from someone else as I'm learning from you that we have differences. We both claim Jesus as fundamental to who we are and how we live our lives, but we do that in different ways. We worship in different ways. We look at scripture in different ways. In some ways, I suppose we look at history in different ways, but we can learn from one another. And there are all sorts of forces and voices out there. Somebody mentions them as conflict entrepreneurs who want to keep us apart. I think that we're working to keep us together and to honor the tradition and how we can learn from one another. I really agree. And in fact, I think one of the things that I have, have, have observed, and I think this is true, that with the with the sort of decline of church attendance, the rapid decline of church attendance across really every religious category, people have replaced some of that religious fervor with political fervor. Mm. And I actually think religion can be a tempering force on our politics. I, I, I believe in politics, as I know you do. I think politics are important as we think about the polis, the city, the, the common good. But politics is a useful tool for advancing you know, justice and and for making things right. But it's a really lousy religion. And I think part of the reason we're seeing such polarization, we're seeing such sharp divides, we're even seeing political violence, you know, spasms of that on all sides, 
is because we, we've totalitized politics. We've made it that our highest end. And I think when people are actually more deeply in their own religious tradition, it adds a temporizing influence on politics. I think the narrative sometimes in the media is that, you know, sort of political extremism stems from religious extremism. But I actually think it's the opposite. I think religion going deeper into our own faith tempers us and puts us in communities that shape us in ways that allow us to see other people who disagree with us as human beings, people made in the image of God, not as objects or avatars or arguments to be defeated. It's funny. I used to say things like civil religion. I was I was okay with the decline of civil religion, this sort of generic acknowledgement of God that America sort of had. Because as an evangelical, I would say things like, well, civil religion isn't true faith. You know, you have to go much deeper than that as a Christian. You have to have a personal experience with God. And I still believe that. I don't think civil religion is the end point of a spiritual journey. But I, I've totally flipped on that. I actually think having some sense of civic religion can be a, a thing that holds a community and holds a country together. Yeah. And it's sort of a governor on our politics, right? Uh-huh. When you think about our, about our founding documents, acknowledge God. I think it's just kind of a humble admission that we don't know everything. There's a higher, there's something higher than us. And so I, I actually think, per your point, that our faith actually helps us do politics better. If that yeah. makes sense. The Latin root of the word religion is religio, which refers to the narrative symbols, stories, practices that bind us together. We know that religion has also set people apart, but I feel in our conversation, we have really embraced the true meaning of religio, which is that which binds us together. We have our differences, but those differences, at least for me, deepens my understanding of who I am, who God is, who Christ is. And I want to thank you, Dan, for this time together on Reconciliation Roundtable. Can you tell people how best to keep in touch with you? Books, podcasts, websites? Yeah, I mean, so my website is danieldarling.com, kind of a one-stop shop for everything. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Not sure if I should be or not, but I, I just sort of am at Dan Darling. My books are available anywhere books are sold. So Agents of Grace is my latest one, and you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or independent bookstores, which I love. There's links to those on my website as well. So danieldarling.com is the, probably the best place. Dan, it's just been a real honor to spend this time with you and look forward to our ongoing relationship and how we can build bridges in so many different ways. So thank you and bless you and your journey and your family. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you having me on and I really appreciate our friendship and our dialogues. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reconciliation Roundtable. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit markbeckwith.net to stay up to date with new episodes, blog content, and other news. Please, if you could, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It helps new listeners to find us.